listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, my name is Mark Kirkendall. I'm one of the leaders here at the White House campus. And this morning we're going to talk about from the Gospel of John, the idea of perspective. And so I want to tell you three kind of quick examples or pictures of this and let you know the first hour only got two out of three. Second one just sailed right over their head. So maybe you can do a little bit better. So here's my story. So they're funny little illustrations, little pictures of the idea of perspective. One is of a little boy named Eric, and Eric loved baseball. So baseball, softball season's almost here, and Man, he went out into his front yard or in his backyard, took his bat and his ball all by himself. Mom watching through the kitchen window. And he gets the game set in his head, you know, no one listening. But in his mind, everything is set. He announces to all the world that is not listening that he is the best batter in the world. Throws up that ball with all he can, swings that bat, ball falls to the ground. Strike one, he yells. Picks up that ball again, throws it up in the air with as much as he's got. Strike two. Hangs that head. He knows this is it. Picks the ball up that third time, <coughs> making sure everybody is watching him, which no one is. Yells, I'm the best batter in the world. Tosses the ball up into the air. And to his surprise, the ball hits the ground. Hangs the head, but then he remembers. He picks up that ball he announces to everyone not listening, I'm the best pitcher in the world. It's all about perspective. Or there's Jack. And hey, we can all relate to this. Jack, he just wanted to please his father. You know what that's like. Wanted to live up their expectations. Well, Jack was a freshman. Decided to go out for the track team. But <clears throat> poor Jack knew it. Everybody else did. that. Jack just had no athletic ability. He was gifted in a lot of other ways. But his father was a great miler back in his day. Signed up, began training, and his first race was only two people. It was him and the best miler in the school. Not wanting to disappoint his dad, the gun's, gun goes off. Jack ran against the school record holder with all that he had, and Jack was beaten badly. So he wrote home thinking about the idea how to paint this for his dad. He said, Dad, you're going to be so happy. I ran against Billy Williams, the best miler in the school. And Dad, he came in next to last. And I came in second. You see, it's all about perspective. And here's a true story. Thomas Wheeler, I never met the guy. He's the CEO of a place called Mutual Life Insurance. Maybe you have some of that. Well, he's driving down the highway with his wife and needed some gas, and so he pulled off to the highway to this kind of run-down little uh, gas station. One attendant came out, you know, wearing one of those long kind of suits, that grease and oil, a tethered hat. Gets out and he asks the man to fill the car and check the oil, and he walks around to stretch his legs a little bit. When he came back around the corner, he noticed his wife kind of having an animated conversation with this lone gas attendant. So he paid, and he Heard his wife say, well, it's nice talking to you. Got in the car and began to drive off. And he said, do you know that man? And He said, well, actually, yes. He said, we went to high school together. And we, in fact, we dated steadily for about a year. 
Well, Wheeler looked at his wife and said, boy, you were lucky I came along. He said, man, if, if you'd married him, you'd be the wife of a gas, uh, gas station attendant instead of the wife of a CEO. Well, she kind of looked at him and said, oh, my dear, if I'd married him, he'd be the chief executive and you'd be the gas attendant. <laughs> you see, perspective matters. And so we're going to see this this morning from John chapter 11. I want to invite you in your Bibles or on your devices to kind of the last section of chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 45. And, but here's what's happened is for the last 18 weeks, it's hard to imagine, back on September the 5th, uh, we began a series through John. In fact, uh, John goes on from chapter 1 to chapter 11 covers about two and a half years of Jesus's life. We call it his public ministry. The last eight chapters is all condensed to only about a week. See, from this point on, what's about to happen is the gospel of John is going to be focused on one thing and one thing only, and that is the cross. In fact, we are about to enter into the very last week of Jesus's life. And the great news is, uh, we have planned on Easter morning to be at the resurrection passage from the gospel. But today's passage is going to focus on two perspectives. You're going to see one from a man named Caiaphas. He's the high priest in the land, and you're going to see things from his eyes. But then you're going to see a very different perspective from God. In fact, these two perspectives are so important because what happens is from this perspective, it directs, it guides everything about our lives. So our bottom line this morning, this is what I hope we'll see, that how you see Jesus' death directs your life. How you see his death, it directs your life. So we're going to pick up in verse 45 of John 11. This is how the word of the Lord reads. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, had come with Mary and had seen what he, talking about Jesus, did. And so we're sitting in between what we saw last week of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. But not just somebody that had passed out had stopped breathing for a while. I mean, Jesus raises a decaying, decomposing corpse back to life. Well, in chapter 12 next week, we'll see this Huge celebration they're throwing for Lazarus, like a, a second birthday party for him where Mary will anoint Jesus. But this uh, 12 verses sits in between these two major events. And what happens, these Jews are following. They're the ones that followed Mary out to meet Jesus. They see Jesus at the tomb, staring angrily at that tomb to raise his friend Lazarus. And look what happens. It says, many believe. Many believe, some come to faith, but here's what we've seen over and over. Every time Jesus speaks, he teaches, he does a sign, it calls for response. But there's only two. We see acceptance and we see denial. In fact, every time Jesus reveals himself, even this morning, there'll be two results. Many will accept this as truth, but some will still refuse and deny and we celebrate with this group that some believe that our brothers and sisters that we have yet to meet, one day we will. But the sad news in verse 46, not everyone. Notice the second group, the denial group. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So there's a group 
that are there that are acting like spies. And they go back to report what had happened. So now the scene moves back to Jerusalem, and we're going to see the first perspective. In verse 47, it says, So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council. Now that is significant because it's the first time you see this in John's gospel. You see the chief priest, you see a group of Pharisees we've seen over and over again, but there's another group that is included to make up what's called the Sanhedrin. Well, the Sanhedrin, you're going to see them later on in John's gospel where Jesus will be on trial, but the Sanhedrin was the highest judicial group in the land. It was created by 70 members. You had the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the chief priest. The Sadducees are the group that, kind of the political group, they do not believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees are the religious devout, and then you have the chief priest. And so this group was the most powerful group in the land. They held the political power, the spiritual power, but they had it all under Roman authority. And we're going to talk about what that means in just a moment. But you see them coming together and it's for one purpose and one purpose only. Look at what it says. And said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. Now that word sign is one that John uses. It's a physical action that points to a spiritual reality. So what we see is they can no longer deny that Jesus is doing these signs. The evidence is overwhelming, especially the raising of Lazarus. They have no explanation. And thinking back, they have tried everything they can to discredit Jesus. They made a public announcement to discredit him, to show their disapproval, and that didn't work. They even tried excommunication from the synagogue with the blind man in John 9, and that didn't work. They tried counter-teachings where they would come up against him, but people still followed and believed. So their fear has always been, this man is a blasphemer. This man is claiming to be God. This man is doing things that we can't explain. And it was really an eternal fear. But notice how their fear has now changed in verse 48. What are we to do? We're not for sure. But if we let him go on like this, they say everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So their fears move from Jesus disrespecting their laws, from Jesus being a blasphemer, to fear of the Romans. Well, why is that? Well, they're afraid that the Romans are going to come and take away, it says, their place and their nation. Because even though this group is ruling Israel at the time, it's all under the supervision of of Rome. And their fear is this, that if more and more people believe, the Roman Empire will see this, and they will come and they will crush us, taking every little bit of freedom, and they will destroy our temple and destroy our nation. And if more people follow him, they're afraid Rome is going to see this as a threat and will come and crush them. So Jesus, in their eyes now, he's no longer just kind of this minor blasphemer that needs to be stoned. He is a threat to their very existence as a nation. And the goal of this council is no longer to discover truth. They can't deny it anymore. 
They are now in survival mode. We must do everything we can to protect what we have. And it's all about perspective. Because here's the one that has come to save. And they now view him as the one that is going to destroy everything they have. And so the high priest Caiaphas is going to come and stand up. In verse 49, he says, But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest for the year. Now, Rome was smart. They knew if they let one person reign too long, that would become a threat they would have to deal with. So what they did, they allowed Israel to have some so-called freedom, but they still controlled it. In fact, a high priest often would not serve for only about a year. If he was favorable to Rome, they might let him go two or three. Caiaphas is going to reign for 18 years. This man could play both sides. Man, he was favorable to the Romans. They liked him. He was favorable to the Jews. They allowed him to rule. But then he looks at them, and this is kind of interesting. This is not how you would win friends and influence people. He stands up and he says, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand. So he says, you don't know anything and you're stupid. And he says, but it's better for you that one man should die for the nation or die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So he says, listen, guys, the plan is simple. How can you be so ignorant? Eliminate Jesus. Meaning we just need to sacrifice him for the good of the nation. But allow that to sink in. You have the most spiritual men, or supposed to be spiritual men, in the nation. If you'd walked into this council, you'd have been impressed by their opening prayer. You'd have been impressed by their priestly robes that were pristine. You would have been impressed by their cleanliness that they went through. You would have been impressed by the boxes that held scripture that they tied to their hands and around their foreheads and how much scripture that they could quote from memory. They have all this religion and all this biblical knowledge let their perspective is totally wrong. What you see is the highest religious leaders in the nation are now deciding to murder an innocent man. Their fear of losing what they have, losing their control, losing their freedom, losing their privilege, they're now afraid and they're willing to throw everything out the window to preserve what they have. In their minds, the end is going to justify their means and they're going to murder an innocent man. Their perspective has totally blinded them. But John gives us a different perspective. Remember what Caiaphas said. Here's what we need to do. Let's sacrifice this one man to save the nation. But the other perspective you're going to get is from the innocent man's father. In verse 51, John records this and says, Caiaphas, he did not say this on his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So even though these words come out of Caiaphas's mouth, John, by God's Spirit, recognizes the deeper irony. And Caiaphas has no idea what he has just said. 
he has just announced a prophecy that Jesus' death would in fact be for the nation. But not just for the nation Israel. He goes on to say, for all the children of God who are scattered abroad. And I think this is the heart and soul of this passage. That Caiaphas speaks, but he speaks the very words of God and he doesn't even recognize it. So here's what I want to do. I want to pause right here. and I want to kind of draw out three truths that I've seen in this passage. So here's the first one. That God did not turn this crisis into good. He was in it from the start, planning it from good. The, the words that Caiaphas spoke, he says he did not say on his own accord, he prophesied that God brought these words to his mind, God put them there, and God had meaning. Meaning on one level, Caiaphas spoke, he meant something, but on a totally, completely different level, God had something else in mind. That Caiaphas spoke the words, and it's going to seal Jesus' death. Caiaphas wanted Jesus dead and out of the way, so he spoke. But God wanted Jesus dead to reign forever, so God spoke. So here's what I want us to see is that God isn't sitting around waiting for things to happen, for us to mess up, or these guys to get into this place to create some crisis and then go, oh no, what am I going to do to fix this? That life isn't a chess match for God where he's trying to counter all of these moves. He is in it from the start, planning it from good. Well, here's the second truth. Christianity, the, the faith that we believe, can be summed up into one word. In fact, if anyone ever approaches you and said, hey, can you summarize the Christian faith in one word? You now can. It's in verse 50. It says, it's better for you that one man should die for the people and save the nation. In Caiaphas' mind, the substitution was, hey, we're going to kill Jesus so Rome doesn't kill us. But in God's mind, the substitution was, I'm going to kill my son so I don't have to destroy them. And God substitutes his son for his enemies. In fact, over the next eight weeks, we are going to see this played out. So at the heart of your faith is one word, substitution. And here's what happens. God substitutes Jesus for sinners. That Jesus is punished in their place. And that is the core and the heart of our Christian faith. And no other religion has that. Almost all others are based on what you can do to make yourself better, to create your best life now. But Christianity is the only one at its core says it's about a substitution. Well, here's a third truth I see. God's salvation will reach the nations for his glory. That God's plan of salvation is not just for one nation. I believe God has a heart and a plan for his country, Israel. But it's not just for Israel, one particular group. In fact, in verse 52, John adds some commentary. He says, not just for the nation, but to gather into one the children of God that are scattered abroad. And I think one of the best pictures we have of this is actually from John himself. John is the one that wrote the book Revelation. And in chapter 5, there is this incredible scene called the throne room. What happens is John sees these angels 
They're sitting around the throne and there's this scroll that's sealed by seven seals. And an angel at one point cries out and says, who is worthy to open this scroll? It goes on to say, no one. No one on heaven or on earth was able to do it. So there is this weeping that is going on before the throne. But then an elder says, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah is here And he can open it. And that lion of Judah stands up and takes the scroll. In verse 8 it says, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures with 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang with new songs, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain substituted by the by your blood you ransomed the people for God and here it is from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom singular and the priest to our God and they shall reign on the earth and so the point is that Jesus's death has effects that far reach beyond the ransom of just Israel it includes from all nations all washed under the blood of Jesus are bound together as one body and one perfect family. But then the council has made their decision. All that's left is for them now to carry out the plan. In verse 53, you see it. It says, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. The decision's done. The only thing left is to carry out the plan. But notice what happens in verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. But he went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. So Jesus no longer walks with them. He goes into seclusion into Ephraim and he waits. And I think John is showing us this, that there is no human counsel There is no human court. There is no human group of so-called religious leaders that will force him to his death. It's all going to be done under the timing of his father. And so from this point on, what happens is John slows down. For 11 chapters, John has covered two and a half years of Jesus' life. But the last eight chapters, he's going to slow down Many things are going to take place. So time will move quickly because of what's approaching. Because look at the scene. In verse 55, it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And what you see is they are entering the most important Passover the world has ever seen. It's the third Passover that John takes us to. But we have now just entered into the Passover where Jesus will lay down his life as the ultimate and the final Passover lamb. This is it. This is the final one. He's been there twice before. So notice the curiosity. And many went from the country, meaning they gathered from all over the land to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. And notice what they're doing. They were looking for Jesus. They were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? 
that he will not come to the feast at all. So they're wondering, is Jesus going to show up? Is he coming this year? I wonder what he's going to say. I wonder what he'll do this time. But the chief priests are ahead of the game. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. So the word is out and Jesus is now a wanted man. You're going to see him in just a few weeks riding in on that Palm Sunday on a colt. But what we see this morning is the perspective matters. So I want to go back to those three truths and see how we might tease this out about what this has to do. What could this mean for us today? So the first one was that God did not turn the crisis into good. He was in it from the start planning it for good. That Caiaphas, he spoke from his perspective, but it was completely motivated by fear and self-preservation. But ultimately, what you see is God is speaking, but it's completely motivated out of love and self-denial. So I want us to see is that even today, God isn't sitting around reacting to some crisis that we create or we come into. He is in it from the start, planning it for our good. He's not sitting around waiting for us to mess up, just wondering how he's going to figure out how he's going to fix things. God is working from eternity past to eternity future for your good, for those that love him. And so if you love him and you know he loves you, it doesn't matter what you're going on, going through. God has purpose and he's been in it from the beginning. So be strong. In the face of hard times, because God is not simply watching and waiting to turn it for good. He's in it from the beginning, planning it for good. The second truth was this, is that Christianity can be summed up into one word, substitution. Caiaphas' perspective said, we're going to kill Jesus so Rome doesn't come and kill us. But God's perspective said, I will kill my son so I don't have to destroy you. And that's at the heart of our faith, that Jesus takes your place. So the one thing I would ask, have you received that substitution for yourself? Because here's the truth, that either you will die and face eternal judgment for your sins, and it will take you an eternity to pay that, or you allow Jesus to be your substitute. How you see Jesus' death determines your life now and forever. In fact, when Jesus reveals himself, we always see two things in Scripture. It's either those that accept it and those that deny. And people looking for an excuse to deny the truth of Jesus, they will always find one. But it's those willing to come, even with all the questions and saying, I don't understand it all, but I'm willing to accept this simple truth that you died in my place. And I pray that you will do that. And that if you have not, that you would accept Jesus as your substitute. But if you have, there's more hope in this. And the hope is this, that you will allow this truth to encourage you when you're in those seasons and you face sin. I think we can find encouragement in this because what happens is we get trapped in these cycles. And we know we are sinful creatures, that we do things and what happens is Man, many times we find ourselves that we don't even know how to get out of that cycle. And there is shame upon shame upon shame. 
But even after we've confessed, it seems like we can't get away from it. And every time we turn the corner, there's something that wants to condemn us again. Satan wants to throw those failures and those sins back into your face. He wants you to question your salvation. He wants to question whether God really can forgive you. He wants you to continue to condemn yourself. So here's what you do when Satan, your conscience, comes to condemn you for confessed sins. It wants you to feel like you're a lost cause. You remember back to, you say to Satan, you say to yourself, substitution. Because listen to the truth of Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could never do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, substitution. He condemned sin in the flesh. So nothing will have more power to comfort you in those moments that God condemned your sin in his son, that you no longer are condemned because Christ stands in your place. Well, the third truth, it was God's salvation will reach the nations for his glory. That God's plan of salvation, not just for Israel or one particular group of all nations, of every nation and tongue and tribe, that the death of Jesus will gather, it says, his sheep from all places. And notice what it said, to make one kingdom, one perfect family. That's what God's doing. And so here's what Adam alluded to. That should give you confidence to share your faith with others around you. Because this is how I've always approached it. I don't know enough. I mean, I'm not going to know what to say. I'm not going to say the right words that are going to get that person to believe in Jesus Christ. Well, here's what I want you to know is that you cannot and you do not have to save or convert anyone. That's not your job. Your job as a believer is to be faithful with the message of the gospel and what Jesus Christ did for you. And God is the one that does the calling. God is the one that does the saving. And he says, I'm building a kingdom, a perfect family for myself. That I'm going to do that. You just need to be faithful with the message. Now, the second thing about that I'd want you to know this morning is this. That you are collectively and individually loved by God, that he chose you, he bought you, and he brought you into his family collectively. That one day we will get together with all of our brothers and sisters that have gone before us, that will come after us, many of whom we've never met. From every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And it says to live as a perfect family. I mean, imagine a family without sin. No more arguments, no more tempers, no more hurt feelings, no more miscommunications. In perfect harmony as one from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And individually, God knows you warts and all. He loves you individually. He created you and he knows you. And man, when we begin to realize that, Man, that should lead us to love other people around us, especially those that are different than us. And so here's a hard question. And here's what I get convicted of almost each and every week. When I look 
at my circle of friends, everyone pretty much is just like me. All pretty much in the same socioeconomic status, pretty much look alike, pretty much same education. But where is it that I'm in places and around people that are different than I am? Because that is the family that God is creating. And so this morning here, perspective matters. So I close with asking, what is your perspective of Jesus this morning? Because how you see Jesus directs your life. Pray with me. Father, this morning we are thankful for this truth. Lord, we see these two perspectives. One from a man that spoke words that really became the death warrant of your son. But Lord, you had a very different perspective. And you were doing something far greater than that man Caiaphas ever realized. So Lord, would you take these truths this morning that you're not just turning our crisis into good. You're in them from the start, planning them for good. And Lord, would you help us remember that the heart of our belief, at the heart of our faith, is the idea that you substituted your son for us. That he lived a life that we never could, and he died the death that we deserved. And Lord, ultimately, that you are building for yourself a family that is going to come from all nations. And Lord, would you help us to have eyes to see those around us? That you would help eyes to see those that especially are different than us, that we would love as you have loved. And Lord, we thank you for this truth. Would you hide it in our hearts this week? And we ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus, that sits at your right hand that was worthy to open the scroll. And by the power of your spirit, amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.